All right. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And bear with me today. I have been a victim of this horrible allergy season. It's a delayed season, and all these trees are blooming, and dust from the trees are falling, and it just everything. Ugh, I hate it. I don't know. How many people here suffer with allergies? It, it, it seems like the medication isn't even working this year, right? It's, here, that it's not even not working. What do we do? Oh, all right, so bear with my, my nasally voice today as we focus and direct our attention to the second chapter of the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. And we read in verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, almighty God, we humbly bow our hearts before you this morning. Dear God, we are your people, and we are needy, we are sheep. Oh, we look to you, O oh Lord, to feed us. Feed us with manna, the spiritual food of your word, O oh Lord. We ask that you would uh, quench our hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would, O oh Lord, through this ministry of the word today, that we would behold a grander vision of you. I pray, Father, for our hearts today. I pray, dear God, for us here, Lord, who our hearts may have been neutralized or, or warmed over by, or cooled over by, uh, Lord, just the busyness of life or our pursuit of sound doctrine or, Lord, the trials and tribulations, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray for the hearts here today that are cool for you, Lord, and I pray that they would be on fire for you, O oh Lord. I pray that you would kindle and spark a love in our church today for you, Jesus. I pray that it would be contagious and the fire would spread to everyone here, that we would have such a passion and love for you, for the exalted and risen Christ. Oh, Lord, that it would fundamentally transform our lives and be evident and manifest as we love one another. Forgive us, Lord, forgive us. If we have been cool towards you, O Lord, forgive us if we have been so distracted that we have not, O Lord, truly appreciated and valued your glory and splendor and radiance. O Lord, 
Open your word today. Speak to us. Speak to me. And, oh, Lord, anoint my lips and my mind that I may speak forth words of truth. Holy Spirit, fall upon us. Fall upon me and overshadow me. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we said last week, we're beginning this new series on the seven churches of Revelation, the seven churches that the book of Revelation was addressed to. And these seven churches, which are listed in chapters 2 through 3, um, are the original recipients of this letter that was given to John while he was on Patmos uh, and under exile and the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to him the things that soon must take place. These churches are listed as follows in chapter 1, verse 11. Ephesus, and Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. If you look at a map, it forms a circle that goes around Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. And Ephesus is the first church to receive... Um, a message from Christ. And it would be fittingly so because John, the apostle, although in exile, before he was in exile, was the pastor of the church of Ephesus and had been the pastor there for a number of years. So this was his home church. It would only be fitting that Ephesus would be the first to receive a message from Jesus Christ as to what is to soon take place. And the first thing that we see here about Jesus and is revealed to us about the risen Christ, and again, I love that this is following on the heels of Easter Sunday because it's a reminder that Christ is alive. He's not in the grave. He's not a statue that hangs upon a cross, but he is real. He's living, and he dwells in the highest heavens, and he rules, and he's among us. He's omnipresent. He is God eternal. We're told in verse 1 that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is Christ who walks among us. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. I want you to consider and think about this because as we gather here today, this is not just a social gathering we are gathering in the presence of Jesus Christ. He is among us, brothers and sisters. He is with us, friends. He is in our midst. We don't see him with our physical eyes, but he is indeed here. And not only is he here, but we have to understand that Christ is involved with each and every church. He evaluates each and every church. He inspects every church. He knows each of our lives individually and corporately. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what's going on behind closed doors. And so as we look at this series, we're reminded that no matter what a church looks like on the outside, the final evaluation belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you think a church is like. It doesn't matter your observation. The only evaluation that counts is Jesus. Because he is aware of every aspect. He is aware of every nuance, every sin, and every victory in the local church. He knows. 
And that's what it says in verse 2. I know. We need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded that he knows everything. and He knows each and every one of us. You see, while we may look at one church and think very highly of it, and say, wow, this church is doing great. They're, they're, they're growing. They, they have so much success and they have so much money and they're doing so well. And then we may look at another church and say they're doing very poorly. Remember, our evaluations are based on our standards, on our preferences. They're biased. Christ's evaluation of the church is based on a much higher standard, and that is his, and he has the right to make a final assessment. So with this church of Ephesus, Ephesus would clearly be one of the most prestigious churches in the first century. Prestigious in every sense of the word. Several weeks ago, I was preaching in the book of Acts, and we learned uh, exactly how the church of Ephesus was started. It was Paul himself who, on his second missionary journey, intended to visit Ephesus, intended to do missionary work there, but was prevented. He needed to go to Jerusalem. And it was, uh, it was there where, I'm sorry, on his first missionary journey, but on his second missionary journey, he would return to Ephesus, and there he would indeed establish a work and the church would grow, and his missionary work in Asia would take footing in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, the province of the Roman Empire. This was a large city. It was an industrial city. It was also uh, the center of cult worship in the ancient uh, Roman Empire. Uh, the statue of Diana and the temple of Diana, or Artemis, which stood over the city, was the, the centerpiece of that cult in the region. And we know that because in Acts chapter 19, we read about all the spell books being burned and the silversmiths starting a riot because Paul had preached the gospel and people turned their lives over to Christ. They were losing business. They were losing money. The culture was shifting. The culture was changing. Now, this, is, this book of Revelation is written at least 30 years after Paul died. The church still exists. It's still thriving and it's still successful. And it's not just because it was started by Paul, but it also had great men of God who took over after him. Shortly after Paul was imprisoned, it was Timothy who would take over the work of pastoring and shepherding the church of Ephesus. If you read Paul's letter to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, those letters were written while he was leading the church of Ephesus. In all of these letters, you could see Paul's urgency to preaching sound doctrine, to refuting the errors of Alexander and Hymenaeus, and, and to cultivating a, a, a culture where the church is the, the, the fortress and pillar of truth, and that <coughs> it was within the church that God was manifesting himself. He gave rules and, and order for the church, and so the church of Ephesus became a model it became a model for the rest of the churches in that region. And then shortly after Timothy left, John the Apostle, one of the original twelve, spends the rest of his life in Ephesus ministering. You can't get better than that. One pedigree pastor after another. I met several years ago. I went down to 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for the PCRT conference. And one of the things you notice is that around the walls of the church... There's a plaque for every pastor going back to the 1800s or as far back as it goes. And each pastor is pedigree status. I mean, you know, you got 
you know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and you have uh, James Montgomery Boyce, and you go further back than that, names we don't even remember. But it, this was a church that has a long history of, of solid evangelical preachers. And it was the same thing with Ephesus. They had the Apostle John, and it's believed that his first epistle was written indeed to the church of Ephesus. It's believed that he wrote his gospel account while he was the pastor of Ephesus. According to early church tradition, both he and Mary, the mother of Christ, lived together in Ephesus, and both of they, them were buried in the city of Ephesus. And so, what would Jesus have to say to this church? How would he find it? And I would imagine that as John is receiving this message from Christ, he's probably thinking, oh boy, this evaluation is not only an evaluation of the church, but it's an evaluation of me. I'm the pastor of this church. And so the evaluation comes. And it comes in three ways. There's a commendation. There's a commendation. There is, there is a rebuke. There's a correction. And there is a warning. All right? Commendation, correction, and a warning. So let's look first at the commendation, verses 2 through 3. Christ had several commendations for the Ephesian church. It was a strong church, and, and Christ gives them praise for it. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. The church of Ephesus had a lot that was praiseworthy going for it. There was a, a, a lot to commend them for. There were three things in particular that Christ outlines here. Number one, they are to be commended for their industriousness. The Lord says, I know your work and your toil. The word toil there means hard labor. It means, it means exhausting labor. It, it tells us that the church of Ephesus was a very active church. This was not a lazy church. This was not a church where people just sat back and relaxed. But this was a busy church. They were busy in discipleship. They were busy in preaching. They were busy in evangelism. They were busy in mercy missions. They were ministering to the poor. They were ministering to the orphan. They were ministering to the widow. This was a church that was busy about the work of God. I would like to think that this was not an 80-20 church. Do you know what an 80-20 church is? You've heard the, the old cliche. You got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. This was not that kind of church. This was a church where 100% of the people were doing 100% of the work. Everyone was involved and everyone was engaged. And they were industrious. Now to think and realize that this was a big city... And it was a very influential city in the Roman Empire. It says a lot about these people. These were people with busy lives. These were not people who just had nothing better to do. On, but they were busy themselves. They lived in a big city. And they had a mindset to be busy about the kingdom of God. There are churches like that we see throughout history. I'm, I think of Metropolitan Tabernacle, the church um, of Charles H. Spurgeon, when he ministered. Uh, in London, England. It was a church that was very busy and active in London and had a great impact and influence on that city. I think of Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. They're a very busy and active church. Every member there is active in doing something and their tendrils spread out and influence all of that region. 
John Stott says they were a beehive of industry. And it is something to be commendable. It is praiseworthy. If we're going to reach people with the gospel, then it depends not on just 20% of the people. It depends on 100% of the people. Secondly, the church was enduring. The church was enduring. The Lord commanded them for their patient endurance. They were, they were suffering. They were dealing with persecution. They were bearing up for the name of Christ's sake. Well, we, we, we saw that already in Acts chapter 19, the, the beginning of that, 30 years previously, where the silversmiths uh, uh, started a riot seeking to murder Paul and his associates in the early church uh, due to the, the, the lack of business from people repenting of idolatry and turning to Christ. Right? There was a shakeup in the city. No doubt that attitude had persisted up until the time of John's pastorship. No doubt that the people there were still enduring uh, an attitude of hostility from the pagans there who had not yet converted. Christianity was not popular in Ephesus. There was still a majority of pagans there. They still saw Christians as alien. They still saw Christians as suspect. And they did not like them and they persecuted them. They could have been boycotted. They could have been blacklisted. It could have been difficult to get a job. It could have been difficult to socialize. You know the deal because we experience that all the time as believers. You're shunned. You're, you're kind of laughed at. You're mocked. You're ridiculed. And in some cases, depending on what profession you're in, you will not be able to get a job or a promotion or anything if people know your values and your faith. It was no less. In fact, it was more hard for Christians to survive in first century Rome. But they held up. These were people that endured. They didn't give up and they didn't give in. <clears throat> and then thirdly, the church was praised for its commitment to orthodoxy. If there was ever a church that was a bastion of truth, it was the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus is commended by Christ for their absolute commitment to orthodoxy. They did not tolerate nor give an inch for false doctrine. Their reputation for, for doctrinal purity was so prominent that even into the second century, church father Ignatius of Antioch commended the church for its loyalty to the truth that it effectively prevented any false sect from gaining a hearing among its members. And I quote him, he says, You all live, speaking of the church of Ephesus, according to truth, and no heresy has a home among you. In fact, in verse 6, the Lord specifically mentions that they are worthy of praise for hating the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Hating the teachings of the Nicolaitans in verse 6, it says, You have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I think it's very important to see the word there, hate. Right? You read the word hate in the Bible, and you say, Wow, the word hate is in the Bible? You know, that's such a dirty word, right? We don't like to use the word hate, right? Because people accuse Christians all the time of being haters. Oh, you have hate in your heart. Where's the love? Well, there are things that God hates, and that's biblical, right? There, there are things that God hates. Absolutely and utterly hates. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. There is nothing wrong with hatred when the hatred is directed at things that should be hated. Okay? In, in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 6, we are told about six things that the Lord hates. 
verse 10, verse 16, it says there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. The brothers. Notice it says in verse uh, 18 that those who are a false witness and breathe out lies. Do you know why Jesus hates the work of the Nicolaitans? Because they're, they're a false sect. They're a Gnostic sect. We don't know exactly who they are. Some think that these were disciples of Nicholas from Acts chapter 6, one of the original seven deacons. There's no evidence of that. But what we do know is that they are a Gnostic heretical group that existed, and that was a thorn in the side of the early church, and they preached heresy. And Jesus Christ hates heresy. He hates the work of false doctrine. Why? Because it's a false witness. It's a lie. When someone perverts doctrine, when someone takes the teachings of the Bible and twists it and perverts it for their own good or with their own desires uh, to accommodate people, then I got to tell you something. God hates that. You know why? Because you're telling a lie about God. You, the Bible reveals to us who God is, and if you pervert that and you change that, then you're lying about who God is. You're changing God's word, and God hates that. And if God hates it, we should hate it. In fact, if you do hate false doctrine, Jesus says, I'm with you. So this was a church committed to orthodoxy. Perhaps it was the stern warning of Paul uh, when he left the elders in the church of Ephesus that gave them this, this footing. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, and they will draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. The message to the shepherds, to the elders of Ephesus is be aware, be alert, be on your guard. There's going to be wolves among you, ravenous wolves. They're hungry, and they're going to try to gain disciples after themselves. And so I have to believe that they took this to heart, and the wolves eventually came, and they were able to discern and distinguish who the false Christians were and to, and to deal with it. They also had John as an apostle. What did John write in his first epistle? Uh, John is a pastor. It says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. Testing and discernment, right? What did Paul write to them in Ephesians chapter 4? Uh, growing into maturity in Christ that you shall not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. They took it to heart and Christ commended them. It is commendable and praiseworthy if you are committed to sound doctrine. There is nothing humble, there is nothing praiseworthy about saying doctrine isn't important or doctrine divides. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing from the pit of hell. Sound doctrine is important because when your doctrine is sound, when your, your teaching is pure, when it's undiluted and orthodox, you give glory and praise to Christ. You're allowing the glory of Christ to be clearly revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we must be vigilant. We must follow the example of the church of Ephesus. We must oppose heresy. 
It's a battle we cannot afford to lose. You cannot lie down, you cannot grow weary, and you can't walk away from. We cannot compromise with the enemy or negotiate with anyone who seeks to mischaracterize God and lie about him and lead people into rebellion against God. Amen? All right, so we see these three areas that, that the church is commendable, they're praiseworthy. But now Christ says, I have this against you. I have this against you, verse 4. But, when that word but is in the Bible, usually it's something good that comes after. But here's the one but where something bad comes after. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What does Jesus mean by this? You abandoned the love you had at first. Now, it's hard to kind of grasp this because here are people that are active. They're patiently enduring. They're committed to orthodoxy. The assumption is they love Jesus. But something was lost there. In other words, what this is telling us, it's very possible to be active. It's very possible to be committed and passionate about orthodoxy. And it's very possible to be patient and enduring under persecution and have a cold heart towards Jesus. You know, some debate, you know, what, what, what was it, a coldness towards Jesus? Was it a coldness towards the church? It's both. To, to try to separate the two is a false dichotomy. What did Jesus say in Mark 12, 28? He says, he says this, 12, 28 through 31. Uh, which commandment is the most important of all? When asked by the scribe, Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You can't separate the two. He calls it one commandment singular, but these make the one commandment. Beasley and Murray say this, where love for God wanes, love for man diminishes. Where love for man is soured, Love for God degenerates into religious formalism. And both constitute a denial of the revelation of God in Christ. If the price paid by the Ephesians for the preservation of true Christianity was the loss of love, the price was too high for Christianity without love is a perverted faith. Let that sink in. It's very possible that you can be a church just like this, that we can be a church just like this and have lost our love for Christ. Now, the church of Ephesus wasn't always this way. When Paul wrote his epistle to them in Ephesians 1.15, he says, I've heard of your faith and love for all the saints. And, and in 6.24 of the, his letter to Ephesus, he says, uh, he speaks of their incorruptible or undying love. What happened? What went wrong? Well, you see, if you do not continue to cultivate a relationship with Jesus in your Christianity, eventually you'll just fall into a routine of formalism and just doing because it needs to be done, because it's right, and forgetting exactly why we're doing it. It's like a marriage relationship. And sometimes you could be married so long, the romance goes... 
and you just fall into a routine and you do what you have to do because it's the right thing to do, but there's no passion, there's no love there anymore because you stopped cultivating that love between the husband and wife. You stop doing the things necessary to, to spark that deep love for one another. And it, and it happens. And when you lose that love, it affects ministry. Laboring in the Lord, no matter how active you are, if you don't love Christ, it becomes drudgery. I got to do this again? You may not say it, but you may feel it. Enduring persecution without love can be very bitter, if not softened by love. And orthodoxy without love is nothing but cold and dead religion. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The problem is this, and I believe the more we become enamored and, and passionate about the word of God instead of the God of the word. What does the Bible point us to? The problem is uh, we can be so intensely committed to sound doctrine and winning theological arguments and protecting the church that we lose a sense of our humanity and what the true nature of Christianity is. William Barclay comments, heresy hunting had killed love and orthodoxy and had been achieved at the price of fellowship. There's nothing wrong with commitment to orthodoxy. There's nothing wrong with activity in the church. But God doesn't want our activity. He doesn't want our orthodoxy. He wants our hearts. In fact, love is the most important mark of the church. When you read through the whole New Testament, what is emphasized more? Love. What did John teach over and over and over again in his gospel account, in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? It is love. In fact, Paul said it's the greatest thing in Christianity. In 1st Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And then in the end of the chapter, in verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is even greater than faith, and love is even greater than hope. Because God is love. And if you are a believer and you've been born again and you're a new creation, then his love has been shed abroad in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And that love permeates in your life for God and for one another. That is the true mark of the church. And that matters more to Jesus than everything else. So now comes the warning. Now that Christ has identified the failure, that which is lacking in church. Christ is not done with the church. It's a warning. And he says to them this, going back to the passage, remember, verse 5, therefore where you have, where you have fallen from, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Lycanitans, which I was saying, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one 
who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there are two things going on here. First, Jesus tells them what they need to do to correct the situation. And then Jesus tells them this. He gives them a threat and he gives them a promise. If you do good, this is the promise. If you do bad, this is the threat. And so make no mistake about it, as Jesus evaluates every church, as he evaluates grace and truth, he looks upon grace and truth church as he does every church. He says, here's the path of good and here's the path of evil. You do good, I'll bless you. You do evil, here's the threat. So let's first look at the, the warning as it contains for us the instructions of what to do to get out of this rut. And it's three R's. Remember, repent, and resume. Remember, repent, and resume. Number one, remember. He's pointing them to look back to where they have fallen. Somewhere along the line, they were doing good, they were in love with Jesus, but they lost their way. And he's asking them to do a careful introspection to see the reference point at which point they fell away. Usually, when our hearts go cold for Christ, it, it, it can be eclipsed by maybe a, a, a misappropriation of our priorities. We begin to put maybe our careers ahead of Jesus. Maybe we put our children ahead of Jesus. Maybe we put our ministry ahead of Jesus. Somewhere along the line, we misappropriate our priorities and we put Jesus down here and we put something else above him. At the end of the day, we're guilty of idolatry. Maybe it was a difficult trial we went through and we prayed and we pleaded with Christ, Lord, take this trial away from me. And he didn't answer our prayers. And your coldness came in there. Lord, you didn't answer my prayers. And you just kind of gave up. You, you, grew, you grew hardened. Your heart grew hard from that experience. Look back and remember. Remember the point from which you have fallen, what caused that fall, but more importantly, remember the passion you once had for Jesus. I am sure that every one of you, when you first became a Christian, was just on fire for Christ. Right? There's something, there's something invigorating when you see someone new who becomes a Christian and they just have that spark, that love, that passion. They want to preach the gospel to everyone in their family, to all their friends. It's almost like they're annoying in a way, but, but you, you're loving it because these people are just so on fire. It's just great. It invigorates the older Christian. It should invigorate you. At one time, you guys were like that. Right? Think of a marriage, right? When you first met your spouse, you were in love, you were infatuated, you thought about them all the time, you wanted to be with them all the time, you were on the phone with them all the time, and there was just this, this sense, oh, I just, and it was the same thing when we first come to Christ, right? And then there's that cooling off. What took place? Remember. Remember that time in your life. Remember when God was all that mattered. Remember when Christ was supreme in your life. And then the second R is repent. Go back to that point. How do you do that? You know, that was something I had a hard time with, right? Repentance means to change, right? It's not just, it's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change of will. But if my heart is cold, how can I repent? How can I change a cold heart, right? We know the scripture says only God can change the heart. 
So how do I receive the command to repent of a cold heart when only God can change the heart? Do we just ignore this command? No. I think what this is telling us is there are things we can do to cultivate that love once again. There are things we can do to cultivate. We need to get back to basics. I think we need to get back to reading our Bibles, not so much studying our Bibles to see how we could formulate more doctrinal arguments to debate with more people on Facebook and Instagram or wherever, but to read our Bibles devotionally and to allow God to speak to us through his word, to just peel through the pages with undying love for Christ, to see him magnified. And to develop a deeper sense of who he is. Not trying to pick it apart like this, this, this book that we need to formulate uh, uh, our presuppositions and debate with people on a regular basis. I think there's a time for Christian debate. But I think if that's all you're reading the Bible for, you're going to lose your love. I think it's time to get on our knees and pray and really spend time alone with God. It might mean fasting. It might mean getting rid of things in your life. It might mean reordering your priorities. Now, here's the thing. You may not feel all warm and fuzzy inside right away. You're like, yeah, well, I'm doing all these things, but I don't feel it. Are we people of feelings? Or are we people of faith? The one thing I've learned in life is that when you put into practice something, you may not feel feel it right away, but eventually the feelings come later. I may not feel like loving God or loving my wife or loving my children, loving you, but I practice those things which are loving and eventually the feelings follow. If you wait for your feelings to do something that's right, you'll never do it. Feelings are not the basis of what we do. Faith is the basis. And most importantly, the way I can encourage you to repent is to look to the gospel. There's nothing that could warm a cold, frozen heart than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about preaching the gospel on the street corner to unbelievers. Preach the gospel to yourself. Our hearts get frozen because we spend too much time talking to ourselves when in reality we should be preaching to ourselves. Wake up in the morning and preach the gospel to yourself. Preach to yourself that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who inhabited heaven and all the glory of the Father and the angels, came down, dwelt in a human body, and bore your sins on a cross. Every rotten, vile thing you've done that deserves eternal hell and damnation, Jesus took it for you. He took it away from you. He took the punishment. He took the wrath that you and I deserve. We deserve hell. Just the past two days alone is enough to condemn you for eternity. And Jesus took it all because he loves you. Nothing could warm the heart more than examining the love of Christ. Because why did Jesus die for you? Because he loved you. When you examine the love of Christ through the gospel, it will warm your heart. And thirdly, resume. Resume. In other words, keep doing what you're doing. Jesus didn't say pause your commitment to orthodoxy. Pause your activity. 
pause your endurance until you feel more loving. No! Keep doing the works you did from the beginning. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up. The difference is, what is your motive? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ controls or constrains us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that all who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for who for their sake died and was raised. Nothing is going to alter your life more than to be constrained by the love of Christ. When we know the depth of the love of Christ for us, it will bring about true gospel work. All right, so what's the warning here? What's the, what's the um, warning? Well, it comes in two ways. If you repent, whoever has an ear to hear, that's speaking of people who are born again. If anyone here has an ear to hear and you repent and you do this, you'll eat of the tree of life and the paradise of God. This is, this is the promise of eternal life. In other words, the, the promise is not just prosperity and, and growth here in this world, but eternal life with God forever in heaven. The tree of life is mentioned later in the book of Revelation. It's a reminder that God intended for man to live forever in peaceful harmony with his maker. But there's also a warning that if the church fails to do this, Christ says, I'll remove your lampstand. The lampstand represents two things. It represents not only the Holy Spirit being present within the church, but it represents the church's influence in the community. It's corporate and public witness. So what is Jesus saying here? You can keep doing what you're doing and not repent, but guess what? I'll take my spirit from you and you'll be a church without me. Christ won't be with the church anymore. Now think about this. Ephesus continued for quite a long time. But by the Middle Ages, the church of Ephesus was gone. In fact, it was written by a medieval church theologian who visited the city of Ephesus. Not only was there not a church, but he said not one single Christian could be found in that city. Today, today the city of Ephesus is, is ruled by Muslims, and there is no Christian witness there whatsoever. Each local church has a lampstand. That is the Holy Spirit burning bright in our lives. And if Christ is offended and grieved, he will remove his presence from the church. And if he leaves us and abandons us, then we are ruined. We will not, we may sustain, we may keep preaching sound doctrine, we may have money in the bank, we may do well for a season, but eventually the church will collapse. So what does this tell us? Well, John Stott in his commentary on the seven churches of Revelation says, No church has a secure and permanent place in this world. It is constantly on trial. It's a reminder that, that Christ is evaluating every church. And that every church is under trial. Jesus is evaluating us. This is not like being a school teacher where you get tenure. No offense, hon. You don't get tenure in the kingdom of God. You 
constantly under evaluation. And if we fall from the part where Christ has commanded us to be, it'll be like the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when in the book of 1 Samuel, there was a point where Israel had fallen into such sin. Eli was the high priest and and he had two sons and those two sons were wicked and he wouldn't deal with it. And eventually the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. It was taken. But it was through the prophetic word that God said that the name of the child born to his sons would be called Ichabod. In other words, the glory has departed. God had departed from his people. And when, when, when a church loses its love for Christ, when it loses its reason for why they gather, when that is gone, you might as well write Ichabod on the walls. The glory has departed. The only thing I can encourage you all is once again is to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. And I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years or three months or three hours. It is the gospel of Christ that we need to keep our focus on and remember who we are. Without that, we're nothing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word today. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and in our lives and in our church. We need you, Lord Jesus. We need you to speak to us, to minister to us, and to guide us. Lord, may we not be like the church of Ephesus. May we not lose the love we had at first. Rekindle that passion in us for you. And may it flow out to our ministry and be evident to all that what we do is for you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.